0: This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett
1: King. And I'm Jason Henriks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services from incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm JP Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks.
0: Welcome to Breaking Banks this week. I am your host, uh, Brett King. Today, we're going to get into the state of payments in the US. In particular, we're going to take a look at the uh the, the the payment space as, as regards uh, urban transportation systems and how this is a precursor for financial inclusion and uh, so many issues particularly when it comes to digital payment adoptions and so we've uh, asked a couple of uh, uh, experts in the field to join us joining us from the Brookings Institute is um, the senior fellow at, at Brookings former US treasury and senate banking um, specialist Aaron Klein Aaron, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. And also uh, joining us is uh, Gillian um, Gillette, and you are the program manager at uh, Californian Integrated Mobility at Caltrans, correct? Yep, the state's Department of Transportation. Fantastic. So, um, first of all, you know, I, I mean, you guys, uh, I, we were talking about this before the show, but um, I, moved, I relocated to Hong Kong in 1999. And uh, of course, um, one of the first things I had to do when I moved to Hong Kong was get my octopus card. Um, and back in those days, you know, contactless uh, payments for urban transport systems were fairly <coughs> rare. You know, following uh, Octopus's success, you had Oyster card in uh, London. Um, I don't know where they come up with the names of this. Thailand's got the rabbit card. Um, you had Suika in, um, uh, in in Tokyo in Japan uh, for that network. Um, and so you know, th- we're talking about 25 years ago that this uh, started happening. Um, you know, and uh, you know, I've been a user of the uh, uh, the. Under, underground system, the the subway system in New York, of course, and we're still using these paper tickets. Um, and you know, obviously, contactless has started to be used there, but the U.S. seems like they're significantly behind in in respect to adopting. You know, new payments rails, not just for urban transport, but generally. But um, Gillian, um, maybe you start us off. You know, um, you know, wh- where are we at, and what are the plans in terms of modernising uh, payments rails for urban transport? Um, and uh, you know, um, what are, what are the forces sort of coming together for that?
2: Well, thanks. So, I think I can only answer for California a bit, since uh, that's where I am. Of course, um, sure. <laughs> In California, we have a, a a state rail plan that came out after the high speed rail project kicked off. That really pushed the idea that you should be able to understand what the price of a trip was, regardless of where you were in California, and that you should be able to pay for it the same way. Um, and I was recruited to be on a on a funded project. Um, and I have I, I'm a sort of a bit of a ringer because I used to work in the in in banking. Uh, and I said, well, you know, this is we should we should just move on to the bank rails. Um, we don't want a special card. We want everybody to be uh, on the bank rails. And so what we are doing at the Department of Transportation is using our fiduciary responsibility um, as regards many of the transit agencies in California to help them access point of sale terminals and, and fare calculation software and use the state's banking relationships to just move to the bank rails. So we have agencies working through our contracts. Um, and our we opened our contracts nationally. So we also have agencies from other states working their way the, through our contracts um, to take open payments. And then we're working uh, with issuers um, to make sure that there are products for the many, you know, the 30% of under unbanked customers um, and really encouraging them to, uh, you know, pay attention to transit. Yeah, because in some
0: instances, like uh, I know, um, you know, when I first moved to New York, for the, for example, the uh, the bus system, you had to carry exact change, That's right. right? Which is like, I I don't know, I can't remember the last time I carried coins in my pocket. It must be years, right? right. Which just strikes me as so crazy. But Aaron, I mean, you've worked on the policy side on this, um, you know, in, in every other. Um, nation that we're talking about on this, this has been a mandated, you know, federal standard that has been rolled out. Um, why is it so difficult to do this sort of thing on a, on a you know, at, both at a federal and a state level in the United States in terms of just modernizing these systems based on international standards?
1: So, Brad, let, let me start with transit and then I'm going to end with a a broader thought as sure, to why please. America is, is backward in our payment system. Uh I was a chief economist on the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee. Urban Affairs means federal transit. We wrote the law for the Federal Transit Administration. And what you have to understand about the United States of America is our transportation process is incredibly balkanized and decentralized. Transit systems operate on the city, municipal, state urban area, multi-state, special, compact, a whole v- tribal. Uh, there are a whole variety of different types of transit systems operating in America with tremendous autonomy, where Uncle Sam is mostly a grant writer and a check giver. And by the way, not the most generous uncle you've ever had either. Right. <laughs> and so transit agencies have to rely on a combination of...
0: A, a sort of doddery old uncle suffering from right. dementia.
1: Occ- occasion- <laughs> Occasionally, you get a big check that you weren't expecting, as we just saw on the transportation bill and some of the stimulus packages that came through. Uh, transit agencies do run to Uncle Sam during times of crisis and ask for more money. And periodically, the Safety Act that I helped write uh, uh, in 2004 gave big new funding. Sometimes that funding comes with cons- with requirements, things like buying American products, uh, labor law and some other protections. But generally speaking, Transit agencies are, have a wide degree of latitude for how to run their systems, and those systems include how to collect money. Two, these balkanized separate transit agencies for some reason don't like to work together. I've long had a hobby horse and wrote into law lots of carrots to try and get agencies to pull their procurement, for example. Uh, Jillian system out in San Francisco runs basically the same rail car system that we do here in Washington, D.C. and suburban Maryland where I live. The systems were built about the same time. Same with Atlanta. But those three agencies wouldn't pull their procurement to buy rail cars in a coordinated way. They would wait till they got the same windfall from the same uncle and then go rushing and bid each other's values up. Uh, and you'd get all these lumpy different sets of work orders from the rail car manufacturer. The same thing's true in payment technology. Exactly. so that's one reason why it's been very hard the second it sounds overly complicated but
0: it is so
2: it's awful. Um, you know, we just just to elaborate briefly on the uncle uh, uh analogy paradigm. so we have, yep. we have 250 fixed route agencies in california oh, wow. and then if you add in paratransit and on demand we're up to over 700 different organizations it's Oh, gosh. Tiny. I mean, I
0: thought the banking system was bad with like seventy regulators in the United States and regulators that um, you know like sue each other, like yeah, yeah. the New York Fed that sued the OCC over the fintech charter. It just blows me away the that contentious so, sort of element. But
1: right, so so one, you have all these different systems, but two, the underlying payment infrastructure in the United States is pathetic, right? Everywhere else among the major countries and many of the developing countries in the world, click, 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 there's your money.
0: Real-time payments, you know, real-time payments
1: have been a thing in Asia for like a decade.
2: Well, but also accounts, basic accounts. I mean, Americans don't have a basic account.
1: So, well, one of the reasons they don't have a basic account is the account doesn't give them the services they need. Today is Friday when we're taping this podcast. If I gave you a check today, it wouldn't be in your account till Tuesday, maybe. Right, right. So, what do you do over the weekend? Set my, my research has shown seventy percent of people who go to check cashers, and there are more check cashers right. in America than McDonald's. No, so,
0: Lisa Servon, who we've had yeah, on the show love, a few definitely. times, has done some tremendous work so, in, right. in that respect. Yeah. So,
1: so look, if the money doesn't move fast and the money doesn't move quickly, right, what you end up having to do is pre-position the money. So, we have a group of things called uh, closed loop systems, to use the technical term, where you essentially have a card or an account and you trade in your money for credits on that account. But every time you do that, there's a little bit of a transaction fee. And so, and the way that our transaction fees are structured in the US, uh, uh, post the Dodd Frank Act that, 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 that I worked on the banking side, is debit cards every time you swipe a debit card it's about 25 cents. There are a few exceptions from that where it could be even higher, but for the most most transactions 25 cents. So, if you do that uh if you're paying $3 to ride a transit line, you know 25 cents is just a little bit under 10% of that, going poof into these high fixed costs. So the transit agency says, well, we don't want to keep getting 25 cents each time. How can we incentivize you to put 25 bucks on there? So New York would do a thing like put $20 on, get a free dollar, right? There are all these different things. So that's great if you have 25 bucks to spare and you don't need it. You can put 25 Mm -hmm. bucks on your card, and you you never have to worry about running out of money. Not, Not costly, you don't think twice about it, right? But what about if you... Need those $25 over the weekend to put food on the table, to buy diapers, to bail out your you know, kid who's run out of money for gas, and you know, you have to give them money. Right? People, so pre-positioning this money is costly. But the transit agencies then say, well, if we're gonna have everybody do it on each per swipe, we're gonna end up losing seven to ten percent of our fare box, an important source of our revenue just having processing fees. It's not unique to transit agencies. Brett, I'll close on this. My oldest friend owns a coffee shop in my neighborhood, small little local coffee shop. One day he's sitting to me complaining. He said, Aaron, last year I spent more on credit card processing fees than I did for coffee.
0: Yeah, that's crazy.
1: It's low dollar, high volume. Micro payments. Transit is amazing. um, I mean, mean, um, there are others.
0: So... Uh, we we do have a simple modality issue here, you know. Yeah. Um, Alan, Aaron, you're pointing out that um, you know China's ecosystem, as an example, um, you know, 2017. Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay surpassed global plastic card volume in terms of yep. transaction volume. Um, and, you know, if you look at what's happening around the world, PIX in Brazil, which we were talking about earlier, um, you know, all, all of these are moving towards digital payments infrastructure. Um, yeah. So, so you know, I, we've got Fed now coming up. but No, we don't. I, well, Fed Later, right? As the what, nickname is. But what what what's the issue? What's the problem? I mean, America well, is supposed to be the most advanced economy in the world on this stuff, right? So
2: I think one of it there you, you get in part, you get the problem of so transit is a very old service, really. It's livery, right? And so there's so transit brain is kind of hard to get around. There's been a notion about the ticket, you know, transit invented the ticket, right? Back in the you know old england days or whatever uh you would give your money directly to the ferryman and the ferryman would give you a ride but the ferryman would pocket some of the money and so the ferry company um it wanted to stop the the fla- or the the fraud basically and invented the ticket right and which Im- immediately imposed administrative bur- or customer burden right so the ticket is more about the merchant than it is about the customer and we've kind of dug in on that uh, and it, and it's turned into this idea that transit is really special and is different than everything else. And therefore, we need this special product. Um, and in the urban environments, I mean, I can't help but point out, you know, I'm holding, I don't know, I'm holding four, five, six, seven different of these currency cards, right? I've got the Smart trip from DC, the Charlie Card from Boston, the Hop Fast Pass from Portland. That's actually slightly different. The Clipper Card from the Bay Area. Do you like collect card. these, Jillian? Is that yeah? I do. <laughs> well, I travel, and so if you travel, you have to have them, and so you get this Pokemon in your wallet. right? They're all made by the same company, but they're not interoperable.
0: That's crazy. So, it,
2: so that's also a factor in transit, right? And, and where it's not the card;
0: money. it's the it's the back end, right?
2: In the back end, it's, it's the card as well, right? They're all the same, you should notice that the other thing about these smart cards is that they are not payment cards, they are security cards. I When I first got out of college, I programmed some of these cards, they're old WyGAN cards and they're meant, they're security cards, right? They're meant to open a door in a secure facility, right? We used to, when I was a kid, you used to go to a secure facility and you'd give your driver's license to the man with the hat and he would let you in or not, right? And that was expensive, so we created these security cards They are about role-based access, right? That's the point of these. They are for the merchant and they are not regulated as a payment card. They have nothing to do with payment. They have to do with security and the rules of the merchant, right? And that's what all these cards are. That's what the the idea is based on. And um, so the longer these exist, in my opinion, the longer, the more of a gate they are uh, to financial inclusion, right? They're actually precluding financial inclusion. And it split the market to the point where the large urban areas get these really fancy cards, and they're made much better if you put a picture of Obama on them, of course, right? And the small small agencies in the United States, of whom there are about 2,000, have nothing. They only accept exact change. So,
1: so let me piggyback on one point that Jillian made, and then let me get to a, one of the elements of the question that you asked, Brett, about why. The transit agency example is stunningly important to me because the faster you can pay to get on the bus, the faster the bus can move, right. right? And that's not too dissimilar from wanting a faster payment system so that the line moves faster Right, at fast food restaurants or other places. It's simple efficiency. And exactly. so uh, uh, you would think transit would be on the cutting edge of allowing situations to move as quickly as possible. Right. On the other hand, it takes a capital investment to upgrade your Fairbox and your terminology system. And you need to be able to invest in that. And there's huge economies of scale. There's a reason why Starbucks has a cheaper payment rate than a local coffee shop. And they invested in an app, which I might point out is all a swipe fee play. It's not about loyalty. It's about reducing their number of transactions. And it was the largest payment app in America. Uh, through the 20-teens, right? Apple Pay finally beat it, but it took a long time. So these uh, you have economies of scale issue, and you have a situation where the incentive for speed, the value of speed, is greatest, and they still can't figure it out. Second question that you asked about why. The Federal Reserve has made a lot of mistakes as it relates to payments. It is structurally problematic that the American system asks the Fed to regulate the speed of payments for society but operate their own system. And rather than do their job as regulator, they've instead said we won't set any rules that our own system can't comply with. It's as if America said, "Hey Blockbuster, you write the rules for streaming, and then we wonder why the rest of the world has Netflix and we don't." I interviewed every almost every single Federal Reserve governor candidate to sit on the board of governors at the Fed for over a decade in my various roles in government. Only one out of, you know, a uh, dozens ever mentioned a priority of payments. I would say to them, what do you want to do when you go to the Fed? Monetary policy, bank regulation, supervision, international coordination. And the one that was focused on payments was the one that was most interested in banks making money. And herein lies, I think, the most pernicious part of our system. Banks make tens of billions of dollars a year on overdraft fees. These are the same banks the Federal Reserve regulates and the same things where if you sped up payments, they would make less money. And one thing that you point out, Brett, about your example in China, Chinese banks didn't really have much of the payment system. It was almost all cash. The merchants refused to adopt the cards. You talked about the growth of Ali and We in 2017. That's because there weren't card-based terminals. Everyone was well, going on cash.
0: But this is, I mean, this has been the ongoing debate. I remember 2012, I met with uh, Chicago Fed. And, um, you know, at this stage, US still wasn't on chip and pin, mm-hmm. um, you know, on EMV. And, you know, the pushback I got was twofold. One is the the merchants don't want it. Um, and secondly, um, well, you know what EMV stands for, right? Um, and I was like, what Europe, MasterCard Visa? And they're like, exactly. It's a European standard. We need a, a homegrown US standard. Well, I, but but the I, problem with that is that the US is now so far behind but, on
1: this. But stuff. this this isn't I, I think you misread the problem wasn't that it was in a Euro standard, the problem is it wasn't the Fed standard. Right. There, right. I think you're misreading your own bias that thinks American exceptionalism. Versus the bias that no, but I think I don't think it. I don't think it's
0: American exceptionalism. I think the problem is here that um, you know that I mean we are reluctant to enforce standards like Europe is,
1: for example, oh, or China is. I couldn't with respect to these things, and I couldn't agree. I couldn't and, agree with you more that we right. we're reluctant to enforce standards. But the reason was twofold. One. The Fed was patting these banks on the back for making money on overdraft, and they didn't want to speed up the payment system because they didn't want to take away the profitability of the institutions they regulate. Two, it wasn't a priority of the institution because the institution was focused on monetary policy and systemic risk, and they don't pay the overdrafts. Oh, you know what, mister, you deposit your money on a Friday and you get hit with bank overdrafts, one out of 12 Americans pay $350 a year or more in overdraft. fees. crazy. Fee. Guess what That's share of those Americans work at the Federal Reserve, right? <laughs> and so, so part of the problem is they would hand people pamphlets on how to better budget while they allowed the bank to sit on money for three days. And it, you can't eat a pamphlet any more yeah. than you can feed your family on a transaction
2: pending line. So Or any it, more than you can feed your family on the money that you prepositioned on your Charlie card, tap card, oyster card. Right, whatever, right. right? Yeah. And that's it's yeah, and
0: you've got, so this is a problem is that you've got this card, which is essentially a deposit taking instrument, right? You know, yeah. you, you've Credit. got funds held on this. It, it, it's not
1: money. It's not credits. money. That's right. Money is something that can be used anywhere.
0: Right. Right. There's no difference
1: between right. It's like a store credit.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like a Dave and
1: Buster's card. You have 12
0: points to use on a subway. Right. Which is crazy. Right. So
2: what we did, what we've been doing is, with the to sort of prove our point, we've been doing these demonstrations before we actually wrote all these contracts. So in Monterey Salinas, which was the first agency we went with, we have both a tourist town, Monterey, and then we have it's you know, Monterey is basically. Populated by people who live in Salinas, who are typically um, very poor, either underbanked or unbanked. Salinas is where all the hotel workers live, but also where the agricultural workers who grow a lot of our garlic live. Right, so we have underbanked and unbanked. So we strap point of sale. Where they animals. grow garlic?
0: Did yeah, you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: garlic. Yeah, Salinas. That okay. garlic is the Gilroy is the garlic capital of the United States. They have a garlic. I, I did festival not every, know that you. Oh, yeah, they have a, a garlic festival every day. year, and they make garlic ice cream. Even it's fun. You should go. Um, <laughs> So, so it was a great test spot. We strapped point of sale terminals onto their vehicles uh, in May of 2021. Between May and August, 30%. And, and we worked with the Cash App, which is great, right? The Cash App has, is phenomenal. No fees, no minimum balance required, which is a big deal besides overdraft. Uh, so the Cash App did a little bit of advertising. Uh, they put some marketing money into a boost. So there was a boost, uh, take a dollar, uh, take, use your Cash App to pay for Monterey Salinas Transit, get a dollar off. So 30% of the Cash App's new customers between May and August in the Monterey Salinas Transit area were directly attributable to this demonstration, right? So we're literally bringing, using transit to bring people into the financial ecosystem, that's a large number, At the end of that same period, 93% of the transactions of these new customers were not for transit. They were for everything else, mostly food, right? So we proved our point. The other thing is we asked the Cash App to include a cash top-up feature. So um, anywhere in the United States now, you can uh, digitize your cash up to 500 bucks for a dollar transaction fee which is very low in the United States because most of those digitizing, most of those sort of off-brand cards charge four to five bucks to digitize your cash. So of the customers that, again, the new Cash App customers in the Monterey area, um, they were twice as likely as the Cash App's normal customers to not have associated their Cash App with a bank account. And that's a hallmark of an unbanked customer. So transit is not only a pathway for underbanked people, to participate in the financial ecosystem, it's also for the unbanked, right? And because yeah. the you know the underbanked so, and unbanked it, customers it, is a tra- there are transit riders. Aaron,
0: maybe you could give us a bit more insight on this. But um, you know, I mean, we are talking not just about payments on um, urban rail and transport right. systems here, this is but electric you
2: know,
0: vehicles too. Yeah, so you yes, know, yeah, I mean, furious. But, yeah, but yes. you know, 21st century, the pandemic has shown us that digital inclusion is going to be absolutely essential. And you've yeah. got to start with the ability to pay for stuff and, yes. and receive payments. Um, so, you know, how do we fix this, Aaron? You know, from a strategy perspective,
1: where do we go from here? So, But Bre- you couldn't be more right. When Singapore passed its emergency COVID direct payments to people, the when it was passed by Congress, it was in people's wallet uh, in their bank account within an hour. In the US government, uh, there were tens of millions of people who are waiting for their March COVID stimulus check in September and beyond, right? We have a major problem in America about how to get people money. Three answers. Number one, you need to require that funds be available immediately and let the industry figure out how to do it. The private sector built a real-time payment system. The Fed keeps saying that theirs is gonna work. Believe it when you see it. There's a, a slow system, but there's very little settlement risk here. It's often overblown, uh, and and you know institutions have pretty good anti fraud systems. And so, for small dollar amounts, but for the, people but that the have gotten in, their money, but they, the, they, sorry, on. go ahead. So one, get the money to people faster. Two, all banks are chartered by the state or federal government in the United States. That charter comes with responsibilities. One of which needs to be offering a low cost, no overdraft, fair basic account. These are often called bank on or safe accounts. They're wildly popular. One out of every five new accounts that Citibank opens is one of these kinds of accounts. There are many other banks across the country that offer it. All banks and credit unions should be required to offer this type of basic account, right? Uh, and and number three, we need to reform how we charge for micropayments. The assumption built into the system was this kind of like quarter to 50 cent floor for any payment under the assumption that debit and credit card payments were going to be big dollar and for small dollar, they'll be cash. And what we found from COVID and from other things, right, is, is that's going away. You're moving from paying from your parking meter with quarters to with apps on your phone, but 10, 20% of the payment of parking where I live in my county in in Maryland is transaction costs eaten up by the American Expresses and visas and payment. Right. But this is, I mean, this is what I was going to say. You know, if you look
0: at the... You know, you look at Alipay, Tencent we, you know, Tencent WeChat Pay, um, Paytm in India, Pix in Brazil, etc. These are all very low um, rail costs. You know, yes. this is the trend that we're seeing, and the other thing is that they are push payments. In, in many cases where the consumer is deciding to push out the payment versus what today we have for card rails is an authenticated system oh. where you you pull right um and and the risk of fraud reduces significantly when you have push payments
1: so one of the one of the one of the best hacks around America's uh, antiquated payment system was instituted by Visa in their direct debit thing where they flip their debit rail to allow for a push instant payment. Yep, That's often the rail used. When people go, oh, I have instant payments from Venmo or PayPal. And I say, well, wait a second. Between your Venmo or PayPal wallets, but try to get that into your bank account. And what you'll find is two choices. A, quote, unquote, free ACH, right. which the institution actually pays some for, but they'll do it. But it's one to three business days.
2: No, it's three to five.
1: <laughs> uh, Yeah, real days,
0: right? seriously. It's it's quicker for me because I maintain a relationship with HSBC, but they're not linked into a lot of the systems here. Um, So it's actually quicker for me to write myself a check and photograph it than it is to transfer from HSBC to Chase. It's insane. It's It's
1: absurd. But the other thing I want to point out is on PayPal or Venmo, there's an option to immediately do it, which is usually done by a Visa Direct Debit, but they charge... 1.75%. Why do they charge that much? It's not because it costs them that much. It's because they've done the market analysis that knows that the people that need their money that quickly are willing to pay that amount. It's profit maximizing. And that ought to tell you something about how important faster payments are for folk. Until we solve this payment process, We're having a situation where transit agencies are losing tremendous amounts of revenue, which then have to be subsidized from somewhere else. Municipal governments are in their parking meters and our EV charging system that America is desperately trying to roll out. Right.
0: predicated on a current system. So
2: so, but here's the thing I I don't want to miss, right, which is that. The bulk, the vast majority of the merchant fees are interchange, which go back to the issuing bank. They don't go to Visa, right. and Mastercard. I mean, we can, you know, say that they should reduce their fees too, right? But what's going on is this sort of big Ponzi scheme, where for the pleasure- but I,
0: it's unsustainable. Like well, the whole interchange business is unsustainable. I mean,
1: we already. Right. Seeing- I, would have, I would have told you that the that that the Fed slow payment rails were unsustainable ten years ago, and here we are. So, um, Jillian, you know. How, how is this, how is the the problem getting solved? And what's the
0: timeline for, for fixing well, this? So least, we've had, a, you know, California.
2: The, so um, Visa and MasterCard have been great to work with for us because they want to complete the network. So um, we, the state of California has banking relationships. And if transit agencies go onto the bank rails using our contracts, they get a special rate for transit. Which is the lowest in the country, and it makes it feasible, and it's far less expensive than processing cash. So the agencies that are, that we're working with are delighted with the results uh, uh, for a whole host of reasons, and and we want to do much more of it, and that's why we opened our. And and and
0: what and in terms of broad consumer and user acceptance, are you bullish on this?
2: Yeah. Do people. I mean. I gave you the statistic, right? I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. people, people, they came on, they tried right. it, they were willing to pay for food it. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah, they
2: were willing to try something for two bucks on their local transit agency whom they trust, right? And by yeah. the end of the same test period. Well,
0: that's the, that's the reason it's been so successful offshore yeah. as a precursor to other payment systems is because right. transport is a trusted vehicle. Right. And, and you, listen, see, guys, what? we've we have run yeah. out of time unfortunately
2: oh alas
0: um you know but that's the sign of a good podcast that we could keep talking about this for for ages so let me ask you this jillian uh, how can we find out about more what what's uh, happening with the uh, caltrans and the payment stuff
2: well so our program uh, we have a website cal, cal is is our website or our marketplace for transit products is camobilitymarketplace.org uh, I'm at Jillibits on Twitter, and I'm on LinkedIn, uh, and I'm a public official, so it's pretty easy to find me.
0: Awesome.
1: And Aaron, how how can people follow you and, and track your musings? So you can follow me at Aaron D, as in David Klein, Aaron D. Klein on Twitter. Uh, I have a whole paper, if you want to delve into this, in the uh, Brookings Center on Regulation and Markets, How Better Payment Systems Can Improve Public Transportation. Uh, and you can follow other work that I do uh, through my uh, Brookings account and online. Uh, and I want to really thank you, Bright. You guys have a million topics to choose awesome. from, and thank doing so a much. deep dive on this. Uh, there's an incredible opportunity to, to to bank the unbanked, to improve the efficiency of public transportation system through a smarter payment infrastructure. And if we can't solve it for transit. What are we going to do for electric vehicles, which are going to be totally different than gas powered? Let's
0: be clear. We need to mandate real time payments um, nationally and we need digital identity infrastructure. That's a baseline for a functional 21st century economy. Can
1: we agree on that? Not only can we agree on that, I will at least take a moment after having bashed some of America's antiquated system to brag slightly. Here's my Maryland state digital driver's license. (laughs) Very cool. We're one of only a few states. America does not have national identification.
2: Well, we're actually working on the with majority too, of our huh? citizens. When you invite us again to talk more about what we're doing with CalITP, we're actually doing a digital eligibility verification, right? Because digital identity okay. is not the same as eligibility verification.
0: No, no. I yeah, get yeah. it. We need yeah, that too. Multi-factor. Yeah.
2: Yeah. All right. Well,
0: listen, thanks guys for joining us on the show. That's, that's uh, it for this segment. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with some more Breaking Banks. When it comes to Global Payments, there's no standard consumer or a one-size-fits-all solution. Each market's payment landscape is unique, and so are its participants and your customers. Start with the Global Payments report from our partner FIS, with data on more than 48,000 consumers across 40 global markets. The Global Payments Report breaks down how consumers pay today, both online and at the point of sale, and projects how behaviours will change in the future. Get up to speed with the fast-changing payments landscape and position your business for future growth. Download the Global Payments Report today by visiting WorldPay, FAS, FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks and invests. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. I'm your host, Brett King. Um, so in this second half, we're going to uh, get into uh, fintech as a service, um, looking at uh, digital sandbox um, and, you know, basically how there's demands on banks and fintechs to work together um, more significantly these days. To do that, we're going to introduce our Powell, Karan Jain. Uh, he's the CEO at a company called Naya One. Karan, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, Brett. Great to be Karan.
0: here. Karan. Um, so um, Naya One, uh, what, is, what does Naya One mean?
3: Naya One, uh Naya means uh, new in Hindi, uh, which is the representation of transformation as the industry is going through a whole lot of transformation. And one is where we're bringing all fintechs onto one platform, so make it easier for financial institutions to consume them. That's where Naya One comes in.
0: And and so you've started this operation out of London, um, but are you working primarily you know, in terms of the sandbox in London, the UK, or is it a sort of more of a global footprint?
3: It's global, so we've got um, we've got active customers in Australia. We've got active customers in Europe, and active customers in US. Uh, as of uh, in two weeks' time, we will have active customers in US in two weeks' time. Uh, but yeah, the company was founded uh, and is has a stronghold in UK. We work with a number of high street banks here, well-known house brands, as well as regulators, to drive that uh, collaboration between banks and fintechs.
0: You came out of the banking space, so um, you know. Obviously, you did work with with Westpac uh, for them, but you were also involved in sort of policy side, you know, back in uh, you know for the for UK finance and and, and elsewhere. Um, but how did that contribute to you coming up with the the concept of Naya One?
3: Yeah, interesting. It's, it's, it's very interesting because so. In the last 20 years of my banking technology history, um, we've, I've seen the transition from building everything to going into partnering into, hey, we should just buy something because they've got a great product and we don't need to build it because the fintech industry is like really fragmented, They they're a product for everything, right? They've got a pill for everything. So I was like, okay, so you know if you transition that for the last five years, it's very much, okay, you need to pretty much find a good partner to fit your value chain so you can serve your customer, be more productive internally, or manage your risk better, right? Those are like the three outcomes I I look at. And um, part of that journey required bringing a lot of tech companies into an organization. Now, not just uh, Westpac, but other, other organizations that I work with. Typically, we look at onboarding IBM and onboarding a small young company the same way. Right, and the thing is, IBM's probably got less risk associated with it than a small company. But the thing is, you can't ask the thousand the thousand questions you ask the small company drowns them. Um, so the work,
0: I mean, the work you did with uh, fintech innovation lab in London, um, the Cyber Club, um, you know, UK Finance, and even the work you did at at Westpac internationally with Lab Twenty Three um, is all about sort of this innovation lab. Style thing. So, is it? Are you trying to create, um, you know, an innovation lab that's cross um, organizational, or is is it more tactical in terms of like just bringing partnerships together?
3: Yeah. So you're right. All of those things point to one thing, and that one thing is how do you enable banks and fintechs to work together in a in a in a more quality way and not spend nine months trying to figure out how to work together. Um, the work the platform we've built um and the first offering is the digital sandbox and the second offering is fintech as a service the digital sandbox is typically the banks will buy that digital sandbox and through that they'll get access to two to three hundred different fintechs that are integrated into the digital sandbox what it means for the banks is they don't have to go and onboard every single one of them they're they, they get direct access it's not a listing it's the tech is actually available in the platform for them to evaluate
0: so um api cloud driven obviously is it a multi-tenancy uh, cloud yeah. setup
3: yeah multi yeah absolutely multi-tenancy every bank gets their own full privacy two tenants shall not meet um yeah.
0: So does this, um, I mean, uh, you know, in my experience as a banking, as a service, uh, you know, uh, platform for moving, I can say that, you know, um, like when we, when we first engaged with TD Bank. Um, for myspend which is uh, the version of MoveIn that was implemented at td and they've been uh, you know we've been working with them since 2014 now it took us 3 months to do the technical elements in terms of integration it took us 9 months to get the contracts and the business stuff done so um you know there's there's the technical side of this but how do you streamline you know the the legal and relationship side of things because in my experience that's where it's uh it, it, it's tricky to get the culture of a fintech and a bank together absolutely and expectations, i think right?
3: yeah absolutely and i think i think there's an element of the way currently banks look at this they want to onboard everything because of their procedures before they can actually test anything so what we do is the banks onboard us and we on board tech providers so our customers are able to get to a decision point in six to eight weeks uh, from identifying a problem so if they're looking for an idb solution or an open banking solution or a bad solution for that matter they're able to go into the platform search for the vendor they're looking for and actually get into a proof of concept and complete that proof of concept in six to eight weeks as compared to as you say spend six to nine months just trying to do the paperwork procurement. And then doing the technical and then go uh, whether these things are fit or not and 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 they can do that with multiple vendors at a time
0: so how are you getting fintechs in at the top of the funnel because it sounds like you've already got uh, you said a few hundred
3: yeah so we're we're sitting on about uh 220 companies that are integrated into the platform at the moment and we have a backlog of about 600 that we're working through um we get them three ways um Top of the funnel for fintechs. One is if we're going after a particular sector, so let's say you know embedded finance is a big hot topic in, in both continents, UK and US um, and, and Canada. So we'll be looking at the companies that are good fit for our customers, being the banks and, and financial institutions, and we'll reach out to them. Second is our customers invite them uh, because now it's part of their operating procedure. They're doing their proof of concepts through us. And the third one is, as the word gets out, we get a lot of inbound. We especially get a lot of US companies coming in because they want entry into UK. And we're starting to see, as we move into US, we're starting to see that uh, the other way.
0: How does this differ from like the fintech type stores that players like, you know, Accenture, Deloitte Digital, um, you know, FIS, you know, and others have sort of built, um, even Amazon Web Services.
3: Yeah, good question. So the Amazon one just works on Amazon. I guess we're cloud agnostic. Um, and that's one of the problems that bank f- banks face. They're like, okay, we're an Azure shop or we're an AWS shop or a GCP shop. But if the fintech comes in and it's on a different cloud, that's, that just trips them up. So we're cloud agnostic. So it's, it's a platform. Um, in terms of Deloitte and Accenture and, and just you know consulting companies in general, I think their proposition is more they have alliances of tech providers that they work well with as compared to, here's a tech here's, here's a list of tech companies that you can access the tech. So it's really, we're targeted at uh, product innovation and tech teams um, to make sure. And we work with a number of those consultancies to help their customers.
0: Fair enough. So, um, take me through the typical life cycle, and, and give me a case study of where this has been really successful for a bank that's come into your under uh, your platform.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you two, and I can't use names, uh, unfortunately. But
0: oh, that's disappointing.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so let's let's take let's take a, let's take a large UK bank um, wanting to do a. Uh, ESG reporting solution internally, right? They need ESG solutions to make sure they can better help their consumers understand their footprint and what, which is which is hot and important right now. Um, so they would go to the platform. They will spin up a project workspace. They will go and look for a number of ESG providers that we have in the marketplace. And if there isn't one they're looking for and they have one in mind, they will invite them to that space. Um, and they would basically spin up safe, secure sandboxes, use a bunch of synthetic data, and test these companies next to each other. The companies can't see each other, but the bank can see all three of them um, and able to compare apples for apples and make a much more qualified decision before they purchase one as part of their stack. The other thing they would do next is actually test some of the integration based on the stack they have, right? Not to get too technical here, but what it does really de-risks integration. So what you've done in this process so far, you've de-risked your innovation, you've de-risked your product development, and you've de-risked integration, which are usually the three things we kind of come up after we make a purchase decision. And you've front-loaded that before the buyer decision. Um,
0: but, but this is, I mean, this is where it gets interesting because you talk about tech stack Um, you know, even that language tends to be very fintech oriented because banks don't really talk, they talk about their core system and they talk about an integration layer or, you know, whatever, but fintechs are all hundred percent in the cloud. And that's why they talk about tech stack generally. Right. But, um, so from a cultural perspective, Even before you start on getting a fintech working with the bank, you have to meet in the middle in terms of those technical requirements. There are still banks who are saying, yeah, we want to work with you, but we want it on premise, which is, I think, sort of crazy these days. But, um, you know, um, is there preparation work that you need banks to do before they can do an effective fintech partnership, including, you know, having a well-developed, you know, cloud uh, team and so forth?
3: Yeah, that's a really good point. And and I think there's a lot of banks at different levels of maturity and different life cycle, right? And I think for the ones that are still saying, hey, we want to test everything on-prem with our data because we don't trust anything, I think what I'm seeing is that every year there's more and more that turn the page and go, okay, well, those two principles are really holding us back to produce good product and propositions for our consumer. Especially
0: if you, you know, if the benefit of a fintech is going to be, we used to call it with Movin bending time and space or space and time, you know, it's it's going to be faster and it's going to be cheaper for you to deploy this with a fintech than trying to build it yourself. But this presupposes that you're fintech ready or you're fintech friendly. And so that's platform culture, you know, um, and, uh, you know, some of those APIs and so forth, right?
3: You're going to find this funny, right? So when we start, we talk to banks um, and we get to that, okay, this needs to be on-prem, this needs to be on-thing. We'll do our best to explain how the rest of the world is working. But, you know, internally, we'll just go, okay, we'll talk to this bank in about 18 months' time when they've kind of come to us. Right, right. I think that's an important
0: distinction to make because I think if you're talking about effective fintech partnerships, a lot of banks want partnerships with fintechs, but they're just not ready to do that. They don't, the, the implications of those partnerships, they're not ready to deal with, right? You know, because banks who aren't ready to move off this core centric. Um, you know, IT architecture. Banks that are, you know, um, thinking of fintechs as a vendor that has to play by their rules instead of a an equal partner in the tech stack, um, you know, they're going to be filtered out of this process,
3: right? Yeah, absolutely right. And I think there's several things. There's there's the the technology part, there's the actual people part here. We need to, you know, there's the alignment issue here, but there's also the cultural and the mindset piece here, right? Because if everything, we're a bank and everything should bend to our needs, um, sure, but also the world is changing and the world's changing very fast. And actually your customers are expecting very different things at a very different speed. So I think I think culture plays a very strong part to this. Um and that's, I mean, that's that's kind of our proposition, like banks who are not kind of ready, like if they're mentally ready, but not, you know, otherwise ready, we kind of help them. Here's a cloud hosted, managed by us, digital sandbox where, you know, we protect your bank and organization from the risk exposure. That's where you go to access the fintechs with synthetic data um, and you're able to make those decisions much, much faster and be exposed Right. What's changing so, ef-
0: effective partnerships between fintechs and banks don't just require a fintech that wants to work with banks. You also have to have banks that meet them in the middle from a technology and culture perspective. So, where mm-hmm. you know, so where have you seen these partnerships fail? Can you talk about that? Um, you obviously don't have to mention names, but.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to think there's there's a few few things that come to mind.
0: Or where it hasn't worked optimally might be a better way to put it.
3: I tell I tell you, I tell you something that I've found where we're all familiar with waperware. That's been the most fascinating one, right? So we go into banks and banks are like, okay, great, we've now got a sandbox, this is really gonna accelerate, find the right partners and, and and the right partners. And they've been talking to a vendor for about nine months or a fintech partner for nine months. I mean, the moment the sandbox appears like, cool, let's load up your tech. It's like, oh, actually the tech's gonna be ready in six to nine months, right? So there's been, they've been on this kind of vaporware journey, which I find like super interesting that's still happening in the market. It used to happen back in the day, but that's still happening in the market. So that's number one. Number two, I think top of the house alignment, I think is a big one. So someone said somewhere innovation is important. So then someone said, okay, we need to implement it. Uh, and then we hired a few people to do that. But then, you know, from the top of the house alignment to all the way to the efforts that are going on, I think that's where it fails because the business models, the commercial models to work with a fintech are different as compared to how you would do a traditional
0: Traditional vendors, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I was used to maintain this, you know, when I'd come into, you know, uh, partners, um, you know, like banking partners with Movin, you know, they'd pass us an 80-page vendor SLA, you know, type agreement. And, you know, at the time we had maybe 20, 25 staff. And to assume that we can navigate an 80-page legal vendor contract in order to be able to execute a partnership. I mean, that is the least effective use of our time as a fintech. In terms of, you know, do, doing a legal agreement like that, you know, um, and, you know, you, you got, you're going to have something like, you know, you're, you're deploying on AWS or Azure or, 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 or uh, Google Cloud and you're telling me you need a 99.99% uptime or something like that. And we're going to be held responsible for that as a fintech. And it's like no that that's ridiculous i mean um as a concept why would you hold us responsible for aws's uptime right you know um and so these these vendor contracts um that they typically take you know the stuff that they've done with ibm and oracle in the past are very poorly suited to uh, to a dynamic fintech partnership you know first of all the fintechs aren't they don't have legal stuff you know, to to deal with this, so you're you're essentially taking budget. You know, because lawyers are expensive, you're taking a budget away from the technology advantage that a fintech offers. You know, and distracting them with stuff that's not in their core skill set. So um, this it, this is a procurement issue right is is that uh, and this this organisationally mm. is one of the key issues that you find with banks is if if the procurement team is who is the primary uh, sponsor of a fintech partnership you're not going to ever get it right so organizationally, yeah. Um, you know, for, I mean, you've seen this development. You were at Westpac, you know, obviously when you sort of uh, saw the opportunity for this. But prior to that, with the the, uh, the innovation labs you've been with, how is that changing now? How are banks adapting from an org chart perspective um, so that they're they're better suited to fintech partnerships, or or is that even happening?
3: Uh, it's not happening as fast as you and I would like right? But it is happening. And I think there's several things here. And I'm going to have to side with the bankers a little bit here, because I think third-party risk management is a real thing, right? So you can't, like, just, I totally get and sympathize because I'm on the other side getting that 80 page, which is maybe 60 pages now, but, you know, it's, it's getting better. It's not overnight. Um, but third-party risk management is is a real thing. And but, I
0: mean, are you doing the master agreement with Naya One, and then you know you you can reduce that complexity for the fintechs. So okay, so that would be the biggest uh, one of the biggest yeah. selling points, right?
3: Yeah, and that's that's one of the big things, right? So, from as part of fintech as a service, we have an MSA with the bank, and we have MSA with the fintech, so we're actually able to accelerate soup to nuts end to end implementation. Uh, not just the sandbox pit; that's the second part of the offering, and which includes like being on the same page uh, on the both sides. Uh, but you know, I think in terms of are things changing, I think the biggest thing that I see within the banks that's the blocker, um, people think it's security, right? Procurement gets a lot of bad reps. Really? Right, yeah, listen, right? So procurement gets such a bad rep and I don't think I've met a procurement department that wakes up thinking I'm going to screw up people's lives today right I, I, but but
0: the but the pr- procurement department is also known idiomatically as the business prevention
3: department by many fintechs yeah because because i think what we're talking about is the procurement process not the procurement department the procurement process requires working to cloud architecture security Legal procurement, privacy—all of those things—and I think there's an inherent inefficiency because when you're in a bank and you're trying to, you know, and you're trying to get into a bank, your sponsor inside the bank has to run around like a mad person internally to line all these things right, right. up. And I think so who, so who
0: is typically the sponsor at the bank uh, of this this type of relationship
3: uh, for us? Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's typically Chief Innovation Officer, Chief uh, Technology Officer, um, and we're seeing more and more Chief Product Officer and Strategy Officer uh, in the US context as well because what they're seeing is, okay, part of the strategy is to work with fintechs. Okay, that's inherently a very slow and inefficient process. So we need an infrastructure tool like now one that can help accelerate. So we're not one fintech. We're not one tech. We're actually a platform that enables you to access a bag of fintechs that's gonna help you drive customer outcomes or internal outcomes.
0: Tell me tell me about some of the fintechs you've got on the platform now and you know who are really sort of getting some traction for you.
3: I'll tell you I'll tell you the like so it ranges all the way from listed companies like, you know, TransferWise, Able, Kodak. Um, you know, so you've got your large ones to your, to your Series C, then all the way to the middle of the pack will be like Series A and B that work in financial services and B2B spaces. Um, and then all the way to like some real uh, unique quant behavioral types, um, depending on what our customers' needs are. Um, so it's all end-to-end. End. The middle of the pack is probably the the, the thickest um, there. In terms of the ecosystems that are getting the most most light is probably open banking, is ESG. Is financial crime? It's all your staples.
0: I I, I would I would have thought, um, you know, chatbots and AI would be pretty strong right now.
3: AI is, is like again, it's one of those green ones, um, and we try and put like you know AI is a type of technology and like which ecosystem does it actually fit in? Because there's a bunch of AI companies of course, in the ESG of space. Um, I'm seeing a lot of. I've actually just today received two emails from two separate banks in terms of how can we help them with ChatGPT because again you're seeing a lot of information around how do you get ChatGPT into the organisation. Well, perfect. Actually, get ChatGPT into the Naya One environment and let the banks use it without having it impact the risk posture. What um,
0: What are the learnings that you can take from from one deal that you do on Naya One? A, you know, and, and you know, improve the flow of business in the future. Like what have you learned since you started this that's making it easier for banks and fintechs to work together?
3: My biggest one has been everyone talks a good game about innovation, but not everyone realizes it the same way. Um, so for me, from personally speaking, from a business point of view. Identifying people who actually mean business when they talk about bank fintech partnerships, product to the consumer, uh, you know, digital transformation, and actually mean it, um, are probably like my best customers because together we're able to create magic for the end customer. But otherwise, we're just you know pushing uphill or or helping them push uphill.
0: So um, so culture is really critical, right? You know, like your ability, like obviously, a good strong sponsor at a bank is important but the culture of the organization in terms of its readiness to to do these types of partnerships sounds like it's still like the the linchpin of a really successful fintech partnership.
3: Yeah, I've been peeling this onion for a while now and and I think I think you can have the enterprise like the organization's readiness to move fast and culture separately because you can get like good cultured organizations right, right. they're ready to move but they're just not set up to do it. Right. And I think, I think that sponsorship from CEO down, right? actions match in words is super, super important for any organization to move forward. Like we we jump on calls with, with banks and they was just like, they're ready to go. And you can just tell in their eyes and their words, they're like, they're ready to go. They're ready to make an impact for their customer as compared to others. are like, I just want to know some fintechs I could, could have a conversation it was like, all right, you're not like, yeah, we'll send you the database. But that's like, we can't help you properly. So um, just,
0: you know, we are only got a couple of minutes left, but if I'm a new fintech startup, you know, I'm a founder of a fintech, um, what would you say is the secret of success to, if, you, if you're going to be targeting banks, what would you say is the secret secret source?
3: Uh, I would say two things. I would say, one, why are you targeting banks? They're the slowest moving beasts. I would say there's so that's enough. where the
0: money is, Dylan just says, right?
3: Not anymore. There's more money in fintech selling to fintech. Uh, right. By far, yeah. by far. Um, I would say. And so that'd be one thing. So I'd really qualify why I go after the banks. Like we're not, we're like, we're starting there because that's where we understand. But you know, we're seeing a lot of activity on the platform between fintechs to fintechs. Because every fintech, they they they're just compounding each other. Then like people, you know, they're smart founders. They're like, I don't need to build this if you've already got it. How much for a wholesale pipe, and I'll build on top of this uh, with my with, with with my unique idea. But the the other big one would be try and find the customer MVP as soon as possible. It's all the obvious things that we know, and try not to like go hard on team expenses and 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 the product without validating the MVP. Have have your have your champion customer ready that you can build with, co-develop with.
0: Great. Well, listen, thanks for joining us today. How can people find out more about uh, your platform? And, uh, you know, if I'm a bank or a fintech, how do I get in touch with you guys?
3: Uh, Naya1.com. You can send an inquiry there, or uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Karen Jane, um, or you can get me on Karen at Naya1.com.
0: Fantastic.
3: Brave move there.
0: Well, sounds like you're making some tremendous progress. So um well done on that front. And uh, you know, we need more people acting as the glue between um, you know, fintechs and other fintechs and fintechs and banks. You know, we are tr- we you know, there is an ecosystem emerging clearly, and it requires operators like yourself. So I, you know, good good luck on on the the efforts here. And um, it's good to see someone who's come out of the the challenge of trying to get fintechs in organizations now working on the other side, trying to make it happen. So it's it's pretty interesting.
3: Cheers, Brad. Thanks for having me.
0: Fantastic. That's it for breaking banks this week. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you like the show, make sure you leave us a review. Um, you know, somewhere. Uh, obviously, all of that helps. Uh, leaving a five star review on iTunes or Spotify and telling people about the show or share it on social media. And don't forget to tell us, uh, of course, who uh, who you'd like to have on the show as well, because you know we try and uh, you know listen to the audience demands a- as well. Um, my thanks go out to the team that helps us produce this each, each week. Kevin Hirsch our uh, uh, chief audio engineer, Elizabeth Severins, our producer, um, Sylvie and Carlo on the social media side, and, and indeed the whole team at Provoke, uh, Provoke.fm, Provoke Media. We're producing, uh, you know, almost a dozen uh, podcasts now. So um, huge, uh, huge uh, shout out to the team. But that's it for Breaking Banks. Uh, we'll see you next week with more news from the leading edge of fintech. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severance, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.